Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. Today is part one of my talk with mastery engineer and studio violinist Eric Boulanger. First of all, what if you received a takedown notice for music that you own, but there's nothing you can do about it? That's the problem that some artists are having with their music that's distributed by DistroKid, and they've initiated a class action lawsuit as a result. This all started when hip-hop artist Damian Wilson, who's also known as Frosty the Dough Man, had a song taken down from various streaming platforms. The song was called Scary Movie, and it featured just three seconds of vocals by another artist, Raquel George, who goes by the name of Rocky Snyder, and she was paid and given credit for a contribution to the song. After a personal disagreement, George then requested that her name be removed from the song, and Wilson refused, so George filed takedown notices on all streaming platforms that DistroKid distributes to. Then, in January of 2021, DistroKid notified Wilson that Scary Movie, as well as his entire EP, had been removed from the streaming platforms when George, according to the lawsuit, falsely represented that she was the copyright holder of the song Scary Movie. So in other words, what happened was she and the artist had a disagreement and wanted her name removed. The artist wouldn't remove it. So she turned around, she filed takedown notices saying that she was the copyright owner. That's bad enough, but that's not really the crux of the whole lawsuit here. The class action lawsuit alleges that DistroKid didn't provide enough information so that Wilson and his label could defend against a takedown notice. They claim that DistroKid's policies make it difficult for indie artists and labels to fight false copyright infringement claims, and that's probably true. It's very difficult to begin with, even when you have all the information and when everything is going your way. The class action lawsuit argues that the music distributors like DistroKid may not have enough of a financial incentive to actually keep the indie music online. They collect their money either up front or annually, so once the music is posted, they don't really have a financial benefit to ensure that the music stays up. So why does this matter? The music industry is a tough place for indie artists and labels. They don't have the same resources as major labels to fight battles like this. If a major label artist like Taylor Swift had a song taken down, there would be a team of lawyers who would quickly take action to keep that music online. For an indie artist, that's not going to happen. The situation highlights a significant challenge for indie artists and labels. It's a reminder of the importance of understanding the fine print when you're working with music distributors. It's probably a good idea for just about everything that you do in the music business. But really, it's a call for better policies to protect indie artists from false copyright claims. The music industry is a complex place, and you have to have knowledge and awareness in order to navigate it successfully. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer forward slash handbook dash fifth dash edition. 
That's go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer forward slash handbook dash fifth dash edition. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now there's a couple audio companies that are currently in flux. It was announced earlier this week that the audio plugin developer Sonable was acquired by Audiotonics. And if you recall, I mentioned a few episodes back that Audiotonics had acquired the console and plugin company Harrison. And not too long before that, they acquired Slate Digital. Now its portfolio includes Allen and Heath, Calrec, Digico, Digigrid, Group One Limited, Clang Technologies, Solid State Logic, and Sound Devices. These are all excellent high-end audio companies, and for the most part, Audiotonics has kept them on the same course without too many changes. The same can't be said for Blue Microphones, though. It was also announced this week that the parent company of Blue, which is Logitech, was going to retire the Blue brand, although it will still keep the popular Letty podcast mic and move it under the Logitech G-Line. This is really a shame because at one time Blue made some great high-end microphones and headphones too. The introduction of USB mics like the Snowball and then the Yeti took Blue from the Pro Audio brand that it was into a consumer brand, and that caught the attention of Logitech, which then purchased Blue in 2018 for about $177 million. Since that time, Logitech has de-emphasized the professional mics in favor of the consumer-facing USB mics. Since this just happened, there's been no word on what is going to happen to the higher-end Blue Pro mics yet, but it doesn't look good for the brand going forward. My guest in this episode is Eric Boulanger, who's the founder of the Bakery Mastering Studio, as well as being a professional studio violinist. A protege of legendary mastering engineer Doug Sachs, Eric has mastered Grammy-winning or nominated projects for Green Day, Hozier, Selena Gomez, Colby Calais, One Republic, Imagine Dragons, Neil Young, The Plain White Tees, Chris Bode, and many more. Classically trained violinist since the age of three with over two decades of professional experience, Eric has trained at such renowned institutions as the Juilliard School, Manhattan School of Music, and Tanglewood. His performances and recordings range from orchestral and chamber music, Broadway musicals, contemporary pop music, and film and television scores. In part one of the interview, we spoke about playing in a string section on the Family Guy sessions, working as an intern at Capitol Studios with the great Al Schmidt, rebuilding the vinyl cutting room at the Mastering Lab, having the legendary Doug Sachs as a mentor, and much more. I spoke with Eric via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to getting into Juilliard. That in itself is well, pretty special. Uh, to be fair, this is all pre-college. Uh, this this was... Uh, I started playing when I was three years old. You know, the specifically about the violin, if you just think of, about it, like the mechanics of just holding it, it's the most awkward thing you could possibly do with the human body. And then you have to be expected to 
produce sound out of this cigar box. And I, I am not putting myself up in the ranks whatsoever of known uh, great violinists, but the vast majority of all string players, specifically violin and viola, and I'm not even going to make the viola jokes, but uh, <laughs> is um, when you're three years old, you um, you're literally learning how to stand in one place and hold the damn thing for more than 30 seconds. That's the start of your training. And by virtue of that, the vast majority of the great soloists and the great violinists, they all start young. I know uh, many violinists who have well started or studied later in life, but I, I, I don't want to make a faux pas here, but it, it's always the name brands, at least. Hilary Hahn, Joshua Bell, you, Gil Shahan. Look at when they started. It's yeah. always going to be around that time because literally you're just learning how to stand in one place. And um, because the the physical dynamic of holding the instrument and actually doing something, and mind you, like, at least in my experience, it took me at least 10 years before um, the windows weren't breaking or <laughs> cats weren't crying, you know, like the, the real testament to my violin playing at least, and I'm sure it must be of every other one would be my parents because there's no way in hell I would have, well, obviously gotten the education with teachers and whatnot, but like that, the, the patience of the practice, practice and everything that goes behind it oh god i can't i can't imagine what it sounded like when i was like seven years old it must have been horrific fast forward to now it's like riding a bike do you still play oh uh professionally all, all the time i do I, I still do uh studio work uh film and tv sort of things in fact my 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 favorite uh, uh to that point my favorite thing to actually do is the recording work because unlike performance amongst the uh, freelance type of thing is you don't have rehearsal. It's just downbeat at 10 a.m. You're on the road at one. Yeah. And I mean, it's countless. Like, okay, my favorite day is when I'm playing at Sony because it happens to be like, one building away from my actual studio. But um, some of my favorite days that feel busy is like I've played for Family Guy for, I think, yeah, this is going to be the 12th year now. It's live music for every single episode. And Family Guy is the best gig on earth because Seth MacFarlane is... You wonder why this show is here for 22 years? I uh, don't quote me. I it, it's I for might be off for a long time. Either. Yeah, right, but, right. Yeah, you wonder about that, but like he set the he, he set the environment up about 
like there's no weak link with anything. And I'm more than certain, like I've played for Simpsons and other shows, uh, Fox things, sorry, Fox, but Family Guy is the only one that like we have a schedule and it's never faltered because it's like uh, apparently the number one show. But the pride in that show is what he set up in making sure everything, there was no weak link anywhere in any facet of that production, which I don't know on the visual end or anything, but, and Walter Murphy is the uh, composer. He did the theme and he's been there from day negative something. <laughs> Forget day zero. He, he, he was there before and still writes every single episode, every single thing. And it's a fantastic gig in this day and age where, I mean, we go in and it takes us an hour and we're out. And I will go from that in the morning across the hill back to my studio in Sony and have an attended full session. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. And those days are, uh, uh, I actually have to say, like a day like that is actually my favorite just because there's kind of like a separation between things. And and uh, as opposed to like, if I was playing at Sony, I've done that too. Like I'll do the single at the morning at Sony and then go to my studio and then work on something. But like, I think by virtue of like Family Guy, where it's like, you play for an hour, you drive in the car across the hill, go uh, go to another, uh, I should have said in uh, Family Guy, norm, like I would say 99% of the time we score at Fox. That's not a certainty, but definitely 99% is always at Fox. And so what I'm talking about is like, go from home where I'm at to Fox in the morning and then, uh, play for an hour, go over the hill to Sony now, another lot, and then meet clients and have what we're probably going to talk about further. But it's fun. I had Ron Jones on podcast a few years ago. I won't go into it now. You can listen, but he talks about the days leading up to Family Guy. And apparently he had done a few themes which they didn't use, but also the fact that Seth came in and almost at the last minute and said, okay, we're scoring tomorrow or the next day and, you know, for the, the, the pilot. And he had to, you know, put it together real fast. Anyway, it's a, a good story. You well, might want to... I, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought up Ron because I was abridging the story and I was back in the days where Walter and Ron were both composing left and right between, because we had specifically at the time we had for McFarland, we had Family Guy, American Dad, and uh, Cleveland Show. And at that time, oh my God, I really want to, I don't think I want to say what I want to on uh, <laughs> publicly. Yeah, okay. Don't, I, I would okay. have to ask Ron for this one. But nonetheless, um, I worked with Ron a lot in the capacity only as a violinist. The story that I really want to tell, but don't want this on the internet, 
um, has everything to do with his last day, which was uh, I played on. And I hadn't seen him a- after that point. I hadn't seen him for years. Like he, he retired from doing that. And through another producer working on a record and, or, and everything, he's working on an opera and whatnot. And I was hired to master it. Huh. And it may have been one of the funniest phone calls ever because, of course, Ron and I, we didn't even, we weren't personal. Like, I'm in the violin section. Yeah. But when the connection was made, he was just like, oh, my God. Like, he looked me up on the website and everything. He's like, yeah, I know exactly who you are because he was staring at my face all those sessions. Yeah, right. I suppose uh, what you might be getting at, too, which is to our viewers, the most important part is I don't know what it's human like to pigeonhole people into saying you do this. You're an engineer. You're a violinist like that happens specifically in our industry more than anything even to the extent of genre, right? Oh, you only mix pop versus R&B yeah. or classical. Like the pigeonholing is crazy. And it, this is just, I, this is hilarious that you know Ron, but like this is an example of literally a composer being shocked at the fact that his mastering engineer that he actually likes the masters for was playing in his section for something else <laughs> yeah right 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 no i didn't realize that you still did that but that's very cool i mean oh, i yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't no. have gone there uh, because i didn't know but it, it's great background stuff it it's well, I, I mean it's not like i talk about this every single day or to anyone who comes in the studio but uh so long as we're now on this yeah. broadcast yeah. Uh, the fact that it's a personal thing for me mm-hmm. i'll never give that up because to me it just personally it doesn't have to do like if you're another engineer i'm not saying that you have to be a musician or anything like this i'm saying to eric boulanger it screws my head on straight like having being able to play and specifically with the exhilaration of professionally and even more so in the recording environment, which of course we're sight reading and it's, it's high stress and whatnot. And I'm surrounded by the world's best playing all at the same time. Like to me, it's kind of the equivalent of when I tune my violin and when I play on a session, that's like me tuning my ears for when I go back to the mastering studio. Right, right. No, I get it. Personally, because I know what life sounds like. Let's get to the mastering for a second and how you got there. So from playing violin to to mastering. I I was assuming that you were uh, interviewing me about mastering. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, right. No, but but I, I like to find out the background. The background of people is really interesting because many times you think it's a straight path to where you get to, but it usually isn't. So I like to to hear those I would stories. Say it's never yeah. that. And in fact, well, you, you 
you didn't ask the question directly, but my path to mastering specifically was I had been the first intern at Capital ever. And by virtue of that, that's how I had the oppor- the blessing of being able to work with Al Schmidt. And between Al and Steve Jenowick, I mean, I learned everything over there. And in, in my in my internship at Capitol Studios. And I bet you at that time, they didn't even know, or I, I certainly wasn't playing there. I was, I was focused on my engineering and what I wanted to do. That's why I was there. And obviously, a vast majority of genres and things that would come in that Al would be working on, especially then, involved full orchestra. And... As a kid, which I was at that time, I wanted to record. I like I love setting up the mics, getting the sound, all of that. And God only knows how much I learned from Al and Steve from exactly that. But the point was the thing that started getting to me personally was I'm still the intern. I'm a fly on the wall. Like now we've set everything up. All the musicians have come in. They've had their coffee and their bagel. I'm at the back just watching what the two of them are doing and waiting for them to tell me if they need something from me, which would never be something critical. And the fact of the matter is once you get rolling as a recording engineer, you're pressing record. And if you think that there's some sort of performance in the con- in the booth, you're sorely mistaken. Like all of the work is the preparation for recording specifically. But once you're recording, you press record. And the thing that was killing me was nine times out of 10 with Al's work, it was always a string section. And I was there in the back of the room as the number three doing nothing, being like, I want to be there instead of in this chair at the back of the room. Like, it would kill me, like, totally. So my in my pursuit of engineering, I was following Al's footsteps and everything, and I was like, I'm going to be a mixer. And mixing unequivocally in our realm of record production, mixing is the most creative aspect of engineering you almost can do anything right and it's that was the thing that i loved the most and you know fortunately with al i got to witness a lot of that too and that's why i fell in love with it and it's because you can really be an artist because you're you're creating it that's mixing and of course with working so closely with al and Al would always use Doug sex. I was very familiar with, uh, okay, Al's done with the mix, going to Doug. And what I was talking about before, when I got back to LA, after having my degree and now needing to uh, figure out that I should do something that gives me money so I can eat. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a, it's a strange concept. I know. It it was just a, it, and it took months too. But it was just opportunistic, and it was just Al calling me saying, 
Doug Sachs is looking for someone, go here now and call this number. And when Al Schmidt tells you to go interview for Doug Sachs and you're aspiring to be in this industry, if your ass isn't in a car immediately, you should find a new career. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) And well, I went immediately and uh, long story short, Doug hired me on the spot. And I remember the words that I said to him, which was, well, I guess I'm mastering now, but he didn't even know where my head was at. And for many years, because, so I started with Doug in 2007. And at that time, we had both Hollywood, uh, the original Hollywood location uh, with two studios and the Ojai, the the newer Ojai um, studio, which was the surround one. And when when I got hired, it was uh, sorry, Gavin, I'll tell you this. I was like Gavin's replacement, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was by no means anywhere near as experienced as he was when I joined. I, I, I was green. I learned everything from Doug, but um, I, I, I don't know how this even arose, but I started in 2007. Then sometime in 2008 is when we closed the Hollywood location, which was a chore in and of itself, just getting everything out. In 2009 was when Doug had the bright idea that he wants to bring vinyl back because the specifically the Mastering Labs vinyl cutting, I mean, obviously it started from day one and was notorious, but Doug in, this was before Ojai, in the Hollywood location, he had three lays at one point even, but nonetheless in 2000 i'm more than certain that's right but in year 2000 that's when he decided no more cutting because everything vinyl and specifically what he told me was anything that was uh, it's not that the work was really gone but it was the only work that was coming in at that point was uh for like dj work like running refs, not even masters. It it was, you know, dub discs for Yeah, for clubs, yeah, sure. Well, I I, I won't use Doug's words, but um <laughs> stupid dance music as he put it. <laughs> yeah. And he just didn't like the work. And so that's why he took out the lays and, you know, obviously the industry in that regard had almost vanished. And then the shock of everything is, of course, the resurgence of vinyl. And for my first few years with Doug, actually some of some of my best days and and words I cannot repeat legally was uh, at that point in time, it, we didn't have the lathes or anything, but Doug would work on a client. And so Doug would go, we'd all go down to uh, Bernie Grumman's and Bernie would cut the record and it would be the three of us in the room and the hilarity between these two people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is unfathomable. And finally Doug just got uh, it. Literally the progression was 
the work that was coming in, everything that we were doing album by album, everyone was requesting vinyl cutting masters. And Doug is like, I invented this. Why are we? He's like, (laughs) so that became in 2009 when I built the vinyl room. And that's where I learned everything. And that was such a engineering that, 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 that easily was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Now that I think of it, because the um, everything, the lays that we used in that room, when they were taken out in 2000, if I'm right with that number, they were in a storage unit in Glendale and uh, they were taken out of the studio and they were stored in a manner in which at that time, every human would be right about this, that they would never come out. And so 19 years later, when they come out, they weren't very good. Yeah, yeah. And it would be one thing if this was like your standard VMS 70 or something, where it was like, oh, here's your manual. But the real history of the Mastering Lab, and I'll tell the viewers, and I'm sure someone's going to opine on this, the real history of the mastering lab, when uh, everyone knows about the custom electronics and everything of the audio train, the whole rationale behind it was because Doug, Doug was cheap back in the day. There was only one dealer, if they're called uh, Gotham Audio. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. In New York. So, yeah. yeah, the importer. The that's import. what I'm thinking of. It's the only way you would get it. And, like, you know, a VMS 70 was. The Germans were like, Achang, this is what we sell. And it goes to the importer, and there's the price. And what Doug did was he parted out things from every other place, and he bought only the things that he had to from the importer. Like, for the thing that's like crazy about this is like the only things that defined a system apparently was the suspension box and like you could for instance you could buy a cutter head you could buy like well not an amp but maybe an amp but all right let's make it simple you could buy you could go up to gotham audio in that day and say i would like an sx 76 there's the price here's the money you get your cutter head but what they would not sell you would be the suspension that's attached to the lathe, which holds for people who don't know is the thing that holds the head and makes it go up and down because obviously there was some crazy thinking of like, Oh, maybe people want to buy spare heads or they want to bring a different head to try out at a different studio. That's back in this day, but the suspension if you're buying a suspension, it means that you have the whole system. Yeah. And if you buy it from us, then no, we're not selling it. And so what what does Doug do? He machines it from scratch. I will have you know, later in life, thank you, Doug, but um, the, the actual VMS-70 suspension is way better than what the Mastering Labs was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was very rudimentary, and uh, there's no question uh, uh, for everyone, just for clarity's sake, 
at the bakery, there's no equipment that we ever got from the mastering lab. Like when that transition happened, it was straight. And my lathe used to be Stan Rickers. And uh, I got a good story back there too, because I had experience with it too. But uh, we'll, we'll keep on building the mastering labs vinyl room, but everything was kind of jury rigged. And of course it was exceptional. And the whole point was it was only built around the utmost of sound quality and the musicality of Doug from day one. In fact, I, I learned more from building the vinyl room than just being in the room, pressing a button, just the rationale of what he was doing with the equipment. But my, my task was all this old shit comes out of the storage unit in terrible shape. And there's all these things that are not built by Neumann. There's all of the electronics, the control system and the audio chain. 100% there had nothing to do with anything Neumann or anything that you could look up in a design. And I found the best thing that I had to my advantage was a, like a, basically a paper notebook that had somehow, when it was in storage, water must have gone it. I felt more like an archaeologist, <laughs> like, and they're just handwritten, you know, schematics of what's going on. And to say it was loose is an understatement. And so it was this massive, complete reverse engineering project that was put on me when I was building the room. And I think the best moment of the accumulation was when it when I was halfway through. And it must have been almost midnight, one night, and I'm working on things. And Doug comes in. And I was surprised that he was there because I thought he went home and a long time ago and went to bed, but, and then he says, what the fuck are you doing here? And I was like, uh, building your room, trying to figure this shit out. And he was like, oh, okay, let's go upstairs and play pool midnight as tired as I was. We did that. And I forgot, I forget exactly what tripped this up, but he had said something. And then I was like, Doug, I need you to understand one thing. You know, when you're like in sixth grade, something like that, and your parents give you some allowance money and you decide for the first time to go to the record store because it's cool and you buy your first record alone. And he was like, yeah. I'm like, do you know what I bought? And then Doug starts rattling off bands and a whole bunch of shit that was way too old anyway. And I was like, you're missing the point, Doug. I bought a CD. I was born <laughs> in 1985. Yeah. I was reverse engineering the vinyl room and building these lays. And I had never up until that point even bought a vinyl record to myself, Wow, which is crazy. But you saw and, it happening. I mean, you went to Bernie's place and you saw it, records being cut. So you had an well, idea about yeah. it. Of course, I understood all of it, but like the thing that's really weird, like I was just born in a spot and achieved a career and a path and had all these mentors where specifically with vinyl, 
I didn't have the chance to go to a record store and buy a vinyl record and play it like you would as a kid. Yeah. Because it was already gone. And it, it's just a weird concept when you think like I can uh, and everything about uh, I mean, we can get into this later, wh- why it's researched, which it should. But the fact of the matter is, uh, I mean, that's kind of really crazy to think about. Like, yeah, yeah. And Doug was just so crazy that he was trusting a kid who never even bought a vinyl record to build the damn thing that cuts it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you with Doug up until the end? Yeah, completely. By that time, I guess you must have thought, okay, I'm going out on my own. The fact of the matter is uh, Doug died in April of 2015, and I opened the bakery in June of 2015. Uh, and... Many people, even Al Schmidt being one, even was surprised by how the hell did Eric do that that fast? And, of course, we're located on Sony Pictures. To be real, like, the the spot that I lease, I can't believe that I convinced them to do that. It's a beautiful space, and God only knows, like, Sony has become family. But the actual timeline of everything and, and and as great as our studio and of course Sony's facilities are on the lot, you know, you can think, how the hell did he do that in three months? And there's a very obvious answer. I did not. I was working on that with Sony for a year and a half before. And the actual timeline that happened was I was I even got a separate apartment in L.A. because at that time we were only in Ojai. Yeah. And I will never forget the day that um, this was like two years prior. So this must have been 2013. I rented, I called it my crash pad, an apartment. I mean, this place in Franklin Village looked like it must have been a Motel 6 in a prior life. (laughs) No joke. And I was renting one room. I had one crazy roommate chick, whatever. But like the whole idea was it was my crash pad. So, and at first it was because I was playing more. And of course, anything scoring work is going to be here in LA. So I, I would be at the mastering lab in Ojai. I'd drive down at night and then not have to deal with uh, traffic later. But I had a real house in Ventura. Never mind. But like the point was when I got this stupid crash pad, this overzealous like property manage manager or whatever looked at my application and actually called the mastering lab at an off time. And it was right when Doug was hiding from everyone and playing solitaire in his office. And he took the call and wanted to speak with her. And he comes in the next morning and he's like, so why are you getting an apartment in Hollywood? And from that moment on, I knew he was on to me. Yeah. Because by that time I was, you know, established as a mastering engineer. In fact, on the books, doing the most amount of work. And we had... um, a difficult dynamic with uh, other people who worked at the studio and I wanted out. So the first reason why I got that crash pad, even though it was convenient for when I'm doing my violin things, which is separate, 
was I figured I would be spending more time in LA to seek out where I was going to move. And within that process, I was lucky enough to, it was, there's a story involved with how I got through with Sony, but it was the violin that opened the door. I knew the engineers there and I was just thinking of where I would want to go. But the whole answer to how the hell I opened the bakery so fast was I didn't. It was in the works for a year and a half. And what actually put the brakes on it was when Doug got sick and I wasn't going to leave him. Uh, Doug was like a dad to me, second to my actual father. And I couldn't do that. And so I stuck it out and it was not a nice uh, process, let's say, with the handling of everything. And I ended up separating myself from it. But uh, the uh, the best blessing that I got was um, Doug and I spent his last, I'd call it lucid day. And he, he asked me for a beer. And because the cancer was in his liver, <laughs> I, I got non-alcoholic beer thinking that like maybe <laughs> this one deuce whatever so sorry doug i tricked you his last beer wasn't even fucking real but uh we it was just us in his living room while i mean he he was straight up dying the the next morning it was you know where hospice really had to happen but that night i get what people talk about with closure because uh i told him everything of which I'm sure he was on to me the whole time. Like it, it wasn't, this wasn't like it was a short process process. Like all he told me was, I'm so glad to be out of your way. And hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's a gift right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he was definitely a character, but, um, and I owe a lot and everything to learning and uh all i can do is uh well now be out of his way and uh make him proud well the fact of the matter is it probably couldn't have found a better mentor and let's not forget that i was introduced to him by al schmidt yeah yeah i know so it was meant to be and i i've been so blessed in that regard and you know we we have to carry that on is the point. That's what those guys do. In part two of my interview with Eric, we'll talk about his unusual mastering studio, installing a familiar piece of equipment, the reason for the vinyl renaissance, why he chose the gear in his studio, and much more. You can find out more about Eric and the bakery at thebakery.la. That's thebakery, all one word, dot L-A. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. 
at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com. You'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.